Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, today in the podcast, we have a conversation that's been bouncing around for a lot of months, and it's finally happening Saturday morning uh, with uh, Adrian Bradley. Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello, so, everyone. Hello. So excited to have this conversation. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Klehus, uh, Hoboko, Comox, and Kalaaman First Nations, who were one uh, community before we colonizers, settlers came in and separated them into reserves um, all over the place. Um, so much that uh, the island that I live on, which uh, the Talaman people call Sayayin, uh, which has some translation to sort of, it's very simple, like rock in the sea or something like that. Um, uh, kind of had its history erased in terms of the indigenous people. I'd say about, I don't know, 100 years ago or so. Um, and they created, and, and the, the white man created a myth that that the Talaman people thought Texada Island was a sea monster that had risen out of the sea and scared everybody away. Now, first off, complete a complete falsity. And in fact, there's actually there's actually archaeological evidence of the Talaman people being here in the 20th century. Um, uh, and uh, and actually for thousands of years. Um, but I was just kind of reflecting on the whole sea monster sort of story. And it's so the word for it it's it's a bad word it's so like dehumanizing i think to sort of take take a great people that have been around for you know time immemorial and say that they're dumb enough to think an island is a sea monster like and that was the perspective and the story that, that, that they told and, I, and I'm, actually when i moved here Locals actually believe this, that these people that just live across the ferry, um, you know, they have their own, they have a, one of the, one of the earliest sort of, not earliest, but I think one of the, the most recent sort of independent First Nations um, that signed a treaty with the government recently, they have their own, they're, 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 they've produced so many uh, important people, uh, like, in, in Canadian culture, like it's it's not it's not just like I don't know a lot about all First Nations, but if they're all like this, then you know we're. I think we're just scared of them. You and I were were talking about in the beginning about uh, you know, uh, um, black excellence. We we're also talking about melanin and how, you know, mm -hmm. it, it uh, the, the power of that of that would it would it, would it be like a hormone? What would melanin? What is melanin? What is it actually? Is uh, it a, it's a chemical. Uh, or, chemical nutrient yeah. sorry to the biologist yeah. pigmenty <laughs> thing you know i should have actually asked uh celeste uh, malone who I, whose episode i just released because i think she said she started with a, like a degree in like biology or chemistry so she might even mm. have a better answer there but anyway point being you know just just you, you know the 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 communities that we're we think we're better than and you know the white the white man thinks that they're better than and, and try to destroy you know, more and more, I, I'm I'm sort of coming to this perspective that it's, and and that not that these other communities think they're better than us, but 
I think that 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 in in some ways we're, we, it, it, this is coming out of some sort of innate jealousy. I think we have, you know, towards some of these communities because we're talking about the melanin making you know black folks look young for forever. And uh, and I was talking about people I interviewed in the podcast that you know I thought were like in their twenties and they're older than me and and uh, with all this experience and knowledge and and uh, talking about these indigenous folks uh, who have just done. I'm just learning more and more about their culture and more and more about just some of the amazing sort of things they've they've done sort of over the years. They're so ahead of the game in so many ways for so long. Um, anyway, so just uh, um, you know, dispel trying to dispel that myth. So I've got a project coming up, um, and I shared this on another episode um, um, to try to educate Islanders on on the history of the Talama people here um through a a disc golf course which just seems like a, a strange sort of medium to educate people on the history of a first nation <laughs> but um i uh, put a proposal in a few years ago to get a disc golf course put in put it on the island because i like playing disc golf and uh, we've got a ton of land here and uh it was during the pandemic so we're looking for kind of social distance friendly activities and disc golf's a great social distancing activity and so the local government put one in and uh but they put it in on on these lands that are slaman lands and uh or uh, like unseated anyway and so uh i just had a great meeting with uh, the government there uh last week and they've given me permission to connect with the slaman first nation uh and and have them very nice. pardon me very nice yeah and and have them um um help me help design all the signage for the disc golf course and so what we want what i want to do is i want to have indigenous art and like on all the, all the signs but i also want to have like sort of like a bit of indigenous history on like sort of each golf i don't know if you know disc golf but there's just like little baskets like 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 kind of like golf and they've got little signage of signs on each on each tee yes, box no, i grew up i grew up in uh suburbia so i know all about this golf. <laughs> okay right on right on and uh um and uh so i want like each sign to sort of you know talk about a, a, an area on the island from and from the indigenous perspective um and because there's a lot of places that have sort of sort of special sacred value to the to the to the Lama people and and kind of get that out awesome. and the fact that they're supporting that is great and then I've got I've uh, we've got a local indigenous artist that just moved to the island um um that I'm hoping to get involved with uh, designing some of that stuff so that's fun awesome yeah um anyway grateful to be here and grateful to have Adrian on the podcast um so Adrian um I feel like I know you haven't been on the podcast before, but I feel like we've had so many conversations. I feel like we already have, but, uh, and I was about to sort of bypass sort of the whole introduction origin story and stuff, but, but I'm not going to. So um, maybe tell me a little bit about sort of uh, your story about kind of how you got into ABA um, and, yeah. uh, and doing the work you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's not a long story. Um, if anyone knows me, I kind of build my, um, what I do in my research around being a young behavior analyst. Mm. Um, I would have been a behavior analyst. I became a behavior analyst in um, August of 2018. Mm. So 
it'll be what five years in in this upcoming August mm -hmm. and I feel like I have done so much <laughs> in those five years. Um, so I started off, uh, I went to Central Michigan University, which um, for those who are watching, I am putting up the mitten <laughs> of Michigan. Um, and so Central Michigan University is like right in the middle of Michigan, mm. like going north though. So um, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, I grew up in uh, Troy, Michigan, which is like a suburb of Detroit. So about 20 mm. minutes outside of, of downtown Detroit. And so when I went to Central, um, I had played soccer in, in high school. And um, fun fact, I've had about five knee surgeries all in high school oh <laughs> from playing soccer. I was, um, I was a rough player. I was a fast runner mm -hmm. um I could score some goals so I was always like midfielder forward top front top mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and so with that I did a lot of damage to my knees and I Oof. was the player that like when you got hurt I was like I'm not hurt like I gotta I gotta get back out there right <laughs> like I was a gritty young black girl <laughs> growing up in white suburbia and I was um I was good and so um but I damaged my body mm. and I'm feeling it now Ugh. so I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic physician's assistant mm. you know, work with athletes um or military I had um, a really good family friend the dad was in the military and that was like my first experience there and they were they were really really close friends of of our family and so um I get to college chemistry is not my jam Science is not my jam. Physics is not my jam. And those are all prerequisites in order to be mm. a And so I was like, nope, let's switch over <laughs> to physical therapy, right? Oh, yeah. Like I did in physical sense. therapy. I'm still on this like muscles and the body and I love it. I'm, I have a degree in kinesiology and I mm. really love like the medical side of things, nice. the pathophysiology and things like that. Um, that still required science. So then I had a minor in psychology and I was like, okay, well, kinesiology, I could go do OT, right? Again, let's just like bring it down. We're still totally. staying. A lot of options there. Yeah. Healthcare, right? Yeah. I graduate college thinking that I'm going to go, um, you know, be an OT. I had been looking into colleges and I had gotten involved in the professional development association for black occupational therapists. It's mm. called the OTC, the national black association of occupational therapists, something. Um, and so um, I got involved with the local, the local chapter there. They had ran um, the program director of the OT program at Wayne State University, which was a really competitive program, um, was a Black woman. And so had worked with go. her, blah, blah, blah. So I got a job in the schools. I was a parapro when I graduated college. And one of the older parapros um, was like, have you heard of ABA? And I was like, no, but you know, you, you sit around at the lunch table and you're like, God, we really need some training. Like I was seeing some very horrific things, kids getting physically managed because, because they were, you know, engaging in behaviors and the teachers, like there weren't BCBAs in the schools. Mm -hmm. You had an ASD consultant who would yeah. be like, if it's spitting, give them a cup. 
Mm. Give them a cup, telling these teachers who have no behavior management training, prayer pros, to give this kid a cup who's in a severely SXI program, and it was all these things. So um, the parapro had told me about ABA. I had Googled, and I had done my research, and I was like, behavior. Like, what else is out there for these kids on the spectrum who who I'm seeing mm. that are engaging in a lot of behavior, that have very little skill set. There's no services. Speech is not helping. OT is not helping. Mm. The school psychologist is so overwhelmed. Yes. It's not behavior analysis, right? And so um, I had applied to a program, Wayne State University's program, and I fell in love. I was like, okay, I don't want to be OT. I don't want to be a physician. I want to be a BCBA and I want to change behavior. Um, and I had just felt like, like, this is where I need to be, hmm. you know? Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my job for the world. You know, some people are like, Oh, I thought about doing this or maybe I'll do that. Um, I'm young and I'm like, no, this is exactly where I want to be, hmm. you know? Um, so I had uh, applied to the program and this part is the untraditional part that I think has propelled me into the area that I am now that at such a very young, I'm, I'm, I'm 31, I turned mm. 31 March 5th. Mm. So, um, you know, this month and I've been a BCBA for five years. So um, I solely believe, and I, I shout them out all the time. My practicum experience was one of the best experiences to this day. Mm. <laughs> um, and Dr. Krista Clancy was the um, director over the University of Pediatricians Autism um, Center where UPAC, where in Michigan, I did my practicum. Mm. I had my very first supervisor. Her name was Carly Steiner, and she owns the Carlisle Center um, in Gross Point, Michigan. And Carly, um, just for the, you know, I was with her for a couple months before she moved on, but um, really introduced me to the science and how to apply the science. Hmm. Um, so Carly, if you're listening to this, like you really mean so much to me in my hmm. career, Dr. Clancy as well, um, and the whole UPAC team as we had our gripes, but um, it was the best, best experience. And mm. so I kind of bypassed being a behavior technician. Um, I got propelled into being a, a case manager at the time. Medicaid would let you bill if you had a master's mm. or were in a master's program. And so I got to really get supervisory experience from inception, right? Mm. Um, I don't think that everyone gets that, right? Yeah. And it really allowed for me to work on my supervisory, my people management skills, and at the guidance of um, these those wonderful women. And so, um, you know, I became a BCBA, had my own caseload. I was supervising practicum students before I even had a BCBA, you know, mm. in partnership with my supervisor at the time. Um, and so it really showed me that I, I love the caseload life, but it also showed me I love the BCBA mentorship, the BCBA yes. development life and um, doing that through caseload. And so being... I was the only black woman um, BCB 
VA for the entire company. Um, I worked in the middle of Detroit and Detroit is 88% Black and African American. And as wonderful as my experience was, um, there were still areas that were not so wonderful, right? Mm. And so because of those experiences and the things that I was I was experiencing, my families were experiencing, um, I, you know, knew that I needed to find a community of, of Black clinicians and think about the development of Black clinicians specifically um, and clinicians of color um, in this field, period. Mm. Um, and so that's what really sparked my interest with BABA um, and my trajectory there and all the things we've we've been able to accomplish. That's what also sparked my interest in leadership development because of my own development, my own mm. experience and what I've seen as younger clinicians than me and um, the type of mentorship and sponsorship that I receive. And um, also just my development into equity of, of services too. I, I, I do a lot in that area. Mm. Um, and ensuring equity of services, equity of knowledge, um, inclusiveness of that. You know, I, I I dabble in DEI, but mainly on equity of things. I'm not a diversity recruiter. I cannot tell you how, how to be more inclusive, mm. uh, but I can work on systems to ensure equity of our services, right? Um, and equity of practicum experiences. So um, that's just a little about how I got into <laughs> into this and it's very long-winded so I love that um, you call that a little um <laughs> and, and, and a not very long history I mean granted I mean I know you haven't been in the field that long but like you said you have done a lot um in the last five years and I think that can also speak to sort of you know there's there's a what is it something there's a lot of there's a lot of new behavior analysts mm -hmm. in our field. Um, yes. And yes. Uh, but there's also an assumption that because they're new, they don't know anything. Um, and uh, I don't think you fit that mold in any way. Yes, I was just watching um, a video and I um, also was just at APBA where Jim Carr talked about the infrastructure and the growth concerns of ABA. Um, but I was watching a video that was saying, you know, we we talk about how millennials this, Gen Z this, right? We don't know how to be loyal. We don't know, you know, what we're talking about. We, you know, talk too much about our experiences and not about the facts and things like that. Mm. Um, but it, someone said, you know, I'm a millennial, I'm a Black woman, and I check off all of your boxes and I'm still not good enough for you, mm. right? Um, and that's how I feel sometimes, you know, as a young clinician in this field, representing a, a, a whole, I, I represent 55% of our field, right? 55% of our field were certified since 2018. Mm. I'm that representation. And so as I hear and I go to these things and they're like, these young people, this, these young people, that, and then I get up and I'm like, hey, I'm that young person and I'm going to talk to you about leadership development, <laughs> you know, um, conflict resolution and things like that. So, um, you know, don't, don't sleep on people. I think just mm -hmm. because. Well, and it's, and, and, and I'm sure you're hearing a lot of, what do you know? You know, what do I know? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you're young, you're black. Yeah. You're I'm a woman. 
you're a woman and you haven't been doing this very long to their standards, you know, and, and, you know, but if you're a man and you're white and you've been doing this for 50 years, then you know, everything, um, you know, um, but I just, you know, you, I, Dr. Danielle Beal, a very wonderful friend, has really taught me how to how to kill with kindness. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, and I just I I keep going, and I encourage everyone to keep going because what I have been able to accomplish in these five years, um, and still have very grand ideas. <laughs> um, you know, the sky's the limit for everybody. Yeah, I've heard of. A few folks that I've interviewed talk about sort of the situation of sort of being the only black professional in their company or or in the school or in their class or whatever. Um, and and again, this is assumption ignorance on my part, but being in Detroit, I make assumptions. Um, but you say that you say that Detroit is eighty eight percent black, and yet you're working in a, in a company where you're you're the only you're the only black professional um and uh why is that america (laughs) (laughs) america (laughs) yeah yeah um you know i know we you know the field of behavior analysis is you know, just now coming around to talking about the DEI issues and the yeah. solutions to those issues, right? Um, I think that I'm someone who looks who looks at, at both perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. And being in that situation, right? Was it solely that, you know, the company that I was working for flat out just didn't want to hire any any black clinicians? No. Mm-hmm. Not at all. You know, not whatsoever. I was a black woman who who were developed by these women, mm-hmm. right? And to this day, get opportunities, and it's it's bi directional and things like that, right? And I'm not saying that was everybody experience, though. Sure, right? And it because it was not. It was not everybody's experience, and so I think that in one breath, the company that I worked for also had a lot of um, other variables at play as to why people of color weren't applying to them. I.e. being that my first salary as a BCBA was 55K. Nothing. Mm. (laughs) I could barely afford my bills Mm. (laughs) as a person with a master's and a BCBA. Mm -hmm. And so I had to sacrifice, I I chose to sacrifice the money over um, my practicum experience and over the development of me as a clinician. Not many people of color can do that, Mm -hmm. right? They have kids, they have, you know, bills and even with that right they have to earn a certain amount so there was that but then also in the field of behavior analysis black individuals make up 3.57 percent right do i think that our field should have been doing a better job at diversifying we should have been going to the job fairs at the community colleges to get technicians to introduce them to this field, right? We have a BC ABA undergraduate, you know, program. Do I think that ABA programs and the recruitment departments should do a better job in that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Do I think that there are some leadership development skills that that generation of clinicians needs to work on as they're working with people of color. Absolutely. Um, There's a research article 
not in behavior analysis, it's actually in counseling. Hmm. And it looked at, um, and I'll try to get the, the article yeah. as well, but it looked at the difference in the supervisory perspectives and experience based off of the color of your skin. So that which cultures kind of worked better together in a supervisory relationship. Mm. And so um, what it found was that white clinicians, white supervisors felt more comfortable with Asian supervisees than any other race. Mm. Right. And the races that they felt like they did not have the best relationship with were Black and African-American mm. and Indigenous individuals. Mm. Um, and it looked at cultural factors that could have influenced this experience. So when you think about um, the stereo, yeah, cross-cultural supervision, here we go. Um, when you look at the stereotypical characteristics and personalities and how um, Asian individuals are raised up to be, you tend to see more, more passive um, characteristics. You tend to see more respect for authority, um, mm. but it's how they are raised and things like that. Um, you tend to see, you know, um, in relation to the verbal language that is used, yes, your body language and things like that. Us as Black individuals, we have a certain level of resiliency skills that we have to ensure we make yep. known, right? And what does that look like as far as conflicts, conflict resolution skills in Black individuals and Indigenous individuals versus Asian individuals and maybe Latinx individuals? Right. And mm. that can even go to what do we experience in society? Right. It's not the oppressive game or anything like that. But um, again, another article just looked at that Black and African Americans and Indigenous individuals are the two most oppressed experience, society, laws, your everyday yep. individuals. And it, like I said, it's not the press, you know, Olympics, but, you know, what does that look like in relation to this study? So this study was assessing the barriers and changes of cross-cultural supervision, a case study, hmm. uh, Judy Daniels, Michael DeAndrea, and Brian Sue Kim um, released this in um, 1999, and everything is still applicable today. Hmm. So, you know, I do think that as we're thinking about why do certain companies tend to lean more towards having people of color and not, we have to think about not only recruitment efforts, but also the leadership skills and the acceptance of cross-cultural um, situations. And are we properly trained in that? Or do we just assume this color blindness of like, well, my supervision skills should be the same across the board. And mm. That's just not the case. Um, Dr. Marlisha Bell just keynoted at Calaba. Mm. Shout out to Dr. Marlisha Bell keynoting um, mm. in front of 2,700 people. Mm. <laughs> Um, at Calaba, but she talks about culturally responsive mentorship and supervision mm. and having to look at that a little bit differently. Totally. I'm just taking lots of notes. Um, 
which I don't need to do because I'm recording. <laughs> uh, but um, um, bunch of stuff there. The the I got a lot of icky feelings when you were talking about um, uh, the cross cultural study and, and and sort of the white professionals' preference for for the yeah. for the Asian supervisees over the black indigenous or whatever. And because you know, my initial assumption as you were talking was the reason they preferred you know asian folks was because of the skin color so you know a a asian folks you know can be yeah, you know so. more more white presenting in a way you know as far as sort of the skin color but but then when you go on to say no it's it's because essentially because this is a group that we think we can have power over them you know we can control them because of their sort of you know nature of sort of you know their sort of cultural norms of, of interaction yeah. and whatnot um you know uh that we can actually control them and and particularly i know there's certainly some asian cultures where you know men in particular are considered to be you know above in 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 those cultures and and so if you're a male supervisor with a an, a female Asian supervisee and you prefer that, you're preferring it because, you know, they'll essentially smile and nod to everything you say is your belief anyway, whether that's the case yeah. for yeah. for all and of them. The cool, part, the cool part about this is that they looked at all like unconscious factors, right? Their body language. How did the white supervisor respond? Body language across the same topics, mm. the same experiences or different experiences, same topic, yeah. right? And based off of language, tone, patience, waiting, all these non-cultural color factors. So for those of us who are like, well, how do we know it was because of the color of their skin? Okay, mm. they, they took that factor out but saw a correlation because of the color of their skin and how they were mm -hmm, reacting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I hate the how do we know question. How do we know this was racist? <laughs> exactly. Um, you said uh, you're, you, one of the things you're really focused is on, on kind of equity, the equity piece of sort of DEI. You're not really a diversity recruiter kind of person. And that resonated with a conversation that I had with Dr. Celeste Malone. Uh, I just released her episode today on, uh, she's a school psychologist and we were talking about, we were talking about recruitment. We are talking about kind of why there isn't, because, because school psychology has a similar, has a similar um, stat to behavior analysis. I think you said 3.57% or something like that. And I've heard other folks with, I've seen the t-shirts, 3.93% um, for a, a sort of a different stat. Uh, but anyway, around 4%. And that's also the same number in school psychology. So the percentage of black school, of black school psychologists in the field of school psychology is is about 4%. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was talking to a, a, a white colleague in the education system about this and um, uh, sort of about the conversation I had with Dr. Malone and, and, and about sort of why there's so, and, and how there's so few black school psychologists um, yeah, in the field. And, 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 and the, this colleague of mine said, well, 
you know, are they applying uh, to, to get into these programs? And, and uh, I said, I, I said, well, yes, of course, but uh, you know, but, but they're either, but, but there's a whole, we kind of went into a whole systemic piece all the way back to some of the conversations I've had with like Nicole Hollins and Mae Bobrin and others who work in the school setting about, you know, kind of the whole advanced placement stuff and, you know, and even going back to kindergarten all the way to, to the, to the sort of discipline sort of pieces and, you know, black kids getting, you know, disciplined and oh, in I kindergarten, you know, in kindergarten. you know, and, I- what people don't know about me is I grew up in that. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, mm. and I went to Meharry um, Preschool in kindergarten. Mm. Uh, Meharry Element, Meharry Medical School um, is out that way. And so they had a, a, a preschool mm. program that my mom would drop me off to while mm. she was in her master's. Um, oh, we got spanking. Wow. All the time. From school personnel. If yeah. that happens now and you guys are over here talking about CRT, <laughs> I'm like, What's the real issue here? And that still happens yeah. to this day. And of course, more so with the black kids, um, um, like disproportionately. Um, um, but also, so there's the whole systems reason of even, you know, black folks getting to the point of being able to apply to school psychology. Like, you know, right. a, a lot of the folks that I talk to in school psychology or ABA, you know, it's only because of, you know, maybe their own privilege of sorts that they've been able to make it this far. You know, many, many folks are, you know, and a term I didn't understand before, but many folks are these are, 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 are and I'm sure you're quite familiar with our are, are first generation, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, attendees. And, and, and I didn't understand what that meant forever, but it, essentially it means they're the first person in intergenerationally in their family to make it this far in school, you know, like most right. of them, you know, didn't even, make it through high school for again those systemic reasons so um that's part of it for sure but and so sort of pushing all of the obvious systemic problems that prevent black folks from even making it this far if they do make it this far if they do get into the programs and there are programs that they you know they're getting into and i, and I know we're going to be talking we'll, we'll probably touch a bit on 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 you know, the, the the historically black colleges and universities and 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 what we're trying to what what you folks are trying to do there uh, in ABA i think she Celeste said there was two school psychology programs in 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 those universities um one that she works at at Howard another one at, i think Bowie or Bowie or not sure Bowie. Bowie, thank you. I want it to be Bowie because it looks like David Bowie, the spelling. No, I, I call it Bowie too. But now that I live in Maryland, they're like, no, it's Bowie. I said, where's the extra up? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, but it's Bowie. It's like, it's like your point before we pressed record that uh, in Africa, they call them zebras. Right. It's where's zebra, the extra E? Everybody <laughs> out there, it's zebra. It, it, it's a zebra. That striped horse is a zebra. <laughs> Just so you know, get it right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, barring all of that, they they they, they get into the programs. Um, that's still not the reason why mm-hmm. the, this 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 is a, such a low percentage, um, because it's not a it's not actually. Well, I mean, it's certainly a recruitment issue as part of it, but recruitment isn't the main problem. At least in school psych, that Dr. Malone was saying. The problem is, is these folks get hired um, into schools, and then the school system is not equitable 
and I think this is kind of what, probably what you're going you're talking about the system to support these folks once they get the jobs isn't there and so they either they either burn out or they just get frustrated um and uh and, and want to get out because they come in and 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 you know there's expectations like you know okay well you can now deal with all of our black kids um you can now deal with all of our black problems um, um mm-hmm. we're not going to change anything we're doing here now that you're here um, um, you know, we're not going to support you any different than we're going to support, you know, uh, you know, other folks. In fact, we're going to probably support you less. Um, and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and so that, and so the problem isn't, you know, is, 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 is not just, you know, sort of this recruitment piece. It's, it's the, it's the keeping people piece. Um, and, and, and it sounds like maybe that's an area you're kind of working in. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is historical. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely it's we could get the jobs, but it is is that infrastructure of that job suitable to what my needs are as a person of color, as a, as a black woman, right? In isolation and loneliness, right? Dr. Nasia Rincion Ulazi, who is a, a great friend, talks about loneliness in her black women in leadership. Um, research article that she published a few years back, right? Is your company conducive for loneliness? Because that's that's where we're at right now. When we make up, you know, three point between three point five seven and three point nine three percent, right, of the field, there's going to be some loneliness, right? Um, and sorry, how, what do you mean by loneliness? Loneliness, loneliness is that I am the only person in this. Um, identified in this category mm. at this job, gotcha. right? So nine times out of 10, what I have been used to in all of my work workplaces is that I am the only black woman mm. in a supervisory level position. Yes. We don't got problems having black technicians. We have problems going from a technician to a BCABA to a BCBA to the clinical directors, to the owners of these companies. That's, we have a pipeline problem. Um, and so- you know, the only person identified as, you know, a lesbian at this place, the only male at this place, right? Um, Onlyness. And what does onlyness do to how you show up at work? Um, But what is that infrastructure as well? You know, Mm. I think the biggest issue um, within the ABA realm is that we struggle even introducing Black people to ABA. Introducing that there is another option. And what we don't realize is how we take advantage of the money that we make 
in this field, mm -hmm. okay? So let's take an RBT position. The RBT position needs a high school diploma, right? Yeah. There is a, increasingly there is more black individuals who are getting their high school diploma or GED, right? Yeah. Instead of allowing them to go, not allowing, instead of, you know, having them go and work at the factory that does a lot of physical labor mm. or at McDonald's that's not even paying them $15 an hour. But we know at the bare minimum, you could work with kids, you could have a very satisfying career as an RBT, introduce you to this whole nother option mm. of a decently paying job, doesn't have you work in midnight, third mm. shift. The latest you're going to work is probably about seven, seven mm. thirds, mm. you know on any given day and you get you can get paid depending on where you live between 20 to 35 dollars an hour yeah right so let's just talk about the the generational wealth that can be built off of just starting off at the rbt position right mm. but as you said if you are the first generation to you know even question to go to college and question to go get your BCABA or BCBA. Number one, I'm thinking about the financial piece. Mm -hmm. There's a um, CNN wrote a report that um, Black individuals have significantly less wealth than white individuals. And mm -hmm. with that, that wealth means who can afford college as college is getting increasingly more expensive. We're yes. trying to figure out how we get this, get this for free. Yeah. So that we continue having people in this system because it's gotten too expensive, right? Um, to then go back and say, hey, yeah, go get your bachelor's, go pay for it yourself, and then do this very specialized thing, you know, of behavior analysis. So our issue, our main, our top priority issue is the financial ability of people, first generation people specifically, mm. being able to afford an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree, mm. right? And then you want to talk about the infrastructure of these places that we're going to work, right? Mm. And I'm not saying we need to make every behavior analysis program free and discounts for people of color and da 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 But what I am saying is that it's a factor that contributes to why we only have such a low percentage on top of what are these behavior technicians experience in these white-owned places? If they are constantly experiencing racism, onlyness, um, Dr. Nasia says it in her article, why would someone want a leadership position when they've been treated like crap from the leaders in that position? Mm. Why would we want to do that? We have to deal with enough resiliency factors that we have to display out in society. I spend 60% of my time at work where I'm experiencing loneliness, racism, my, mm. my family's being told this, I'm being talked to any type of way, you know, by my white coworkers. Um, why do I want to be in a leadership position? Mm. Why do I want that? Right. So I'm going to leave and I'm going to go start my own company, even when I may not have the training and the thought or the mentorship to do this in a, in a quality way. And that's what we're seeing, right? Um, mm. About 60, it's 65% of our field is the ages of 18 to 34. Mm. It's a new demographic marker that the BACB came out with um, in January. 65% mm. of our field is younger than 34. Yes. 
And it's only growing because, you know, people retire, people, you know, pass away, things like that. 34 is the cutoff. <laughs> like, it's crazy, but it's the lack of quality assurance and DEI focus storm what it can bring. And, and how and 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 you're and you're saying like a good chunk of these folks are just going off and starting their own companies like early on. Yeah, early on. Like I know, um, I know someone who's like I'm building a website, building their infrastructure, building you know how they're gonna pay for services. They don't even have their BCBA yet, but they got mm. a business coach because they're like, listen. I, I can't do this. If this if this is what the ABA agencies are and the experience is going to be like, let me go off and do my own thing. Mm -hmm. I'm my own boss. And I think that's why Black Americans in general have a very entrepreneurial mindset because of that. Right? Interesting. What mm -hmm. has naturally developed. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And then whatever, I've definitely seen, you know, the, the entrepreneurial this uh uh you know of, of a lot of different people of color but i didn't think of it as because the current yeah. systems and the current businesses that they want to they could be working for you know have all these problems have all the problems why am i staying in a toxic place i think that's what covid has taught us the most mm -hmm. like, the fastest growing um population of educated individuals and entrepreneurs are black women yeah the fastest growing demographic sector is Black women. And that includes behavior analysis. That includes healthcare. That includes, you know, anything. Now, beyond the fact that, of course, you know, these folks shouldn't be staying in these toxic environments. I get that. And I'm not sort of encouraging that by any means. Is this a problem? That not, not, obviously it's a problem within those those white workplaces but is this a problem that all of these young black professionals are are being entrepreneurial and starting their own businesses and starting their own companies and basically becoming clinical directors after being bcpas for a year and so on and so forth you know i'm not going to say it's a problem if the right supports are there and and not solely just on on black clinicians either this is this is what we're seeing across the board of, of just young clinicians yes true I'm included in that, right? Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. I have zero, <laughs> zero energy to own my own business. Right? I own me and I own, you know, I'll do some presentations, I do research, mm. things like that, but I have zero desire to own my yeah. own ABA company in that in that manner. Um but you work for an ABA company that's owned by a young professional, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Signature Behavioral Health is in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, Denisha Jingles is mm. the owner of that company. So, um, yeah, shout out to Denisha and Signature mm. um, in Baltimore. Um, I, I think that I'm not going to say that it's not a problem because we don't we're not seeing the training and the development that needs mm. to happen in order to handle quality assurance mm. right we when you go out to start something that you don't have experience in just yet you're going to make mistakes mm -hmm. and that may be financial mistakes that be may be billing mistakes that may be clinical development mistakes hiring mistakes things like that mm. and you 
But when you see so many people doing it at the same time, you're like, well, they did it. Why can't I do it? Which is a very fair argument. Why not? Right. But I do think that we have to do a better job. If we see that 65% of our field is below the age of 34, right? Mm -hmm. How are we doing in developing and addressing that problem? Mm. I'm a very, um, I'm all about solutions. I, I see a problem and I'm like, yes, that's great. We're going to talk about why this is a problem, but we also need to put energy towards getting a solution. And I think mm. that's why I'm so very interested in staying in this leadership development realm, especially for clinicians who are are like me, are young, are of color, are women, are uh, millennials. <laughs> I've been told that we're, you know, we suck <laughs> um, since the day we turned 18, Yeah, uh, you know? And so I, I think that's why it's so very important that we, we as a community and behavior analysis focus on develop the skills that need to be developed for leadership, the skills mm-hmm. that need to be developed for entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurs of color, right? You see shaping leaders, you see the BLAC, um, you see APBA, BABA. We offer so many cohort trainings mm-hmm. and mentorship um, for our community because if if that is going to be the case because of a issue that has been created because we have not been focusing on the, the experience of BIPOC individuals, great. This this is the reality. This is this is the dinner we got to eat. Now let's figure out how we're going to eat it and digest it and Mm. have a good time doing it. So what, 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 what are, what can folks do? Because I mean, it's sort of, this is sort of the, this is sort of the problem when you go start your own company. Mm-hmm. As as a young leader, young clinical director, and uh, you know, I think for a long time our our our, our world has thought, you know, you got to be doing this job for a lot of years before a clinical director sort of comes on your plate, um, and uh, uh, and yet we have a lot of these people out there calling themselves CEOs and presidents and direct clinical directors, and like I said, they're you know they're some of them are under thirty. Um, mm-hmm. I guess first off, number one, do, do these folks realize they need support um, in, to be leaders? And two, is that support available? Like, where where can they get that support? To both of those questions, it's yes and no. Hmm. I think there are some people who are like, listen, if you know, I'm going to figure it out, and I don't want help. You know, some people don't want help. Some people yeah. don't do enough reflection to also realize they need help, mm-hmm. right? Therefore, is not seeking out the resources that are available to develop those skills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's always going to be that sector of the population. Yeah. But in this other sector, there are more um, organizations that are focusing on this. That mm-hmm. was the theme at APBA. Um, mm-hmm. APBA was in Seattle, uh, March 9th through the 12th. Mm-hmm. And The theme at APBA unintentionally um, was we are growing at a God awful fast rate. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Jim Carr said it best that no other healthcare industry is growing or has grown previously and currently in the rate that behavior analysis is growing. Mm -hmm. 
we are growing at from 20, 2009 to 2018, we grew 3,751% mm. in clinicians, right? There's a job posting for every clinician out there. There were mm. 57,000, over 57,000 BCBA, BCABA jobs posted last year, just in 2022. Wow. Our 58 or 60,000 BCBAs, BCABA. There's a job for every clinician we have in our industry, whether mm. the job is where you want it to be. Mm-hmm, is the question, mm-hmm. But there's a job out there. Mm. And so as a field, especially um, professional development organizations, the BACB, APBA, ABAI sees this growth concern. Therefore, are focusing more on leadership development. Right. I'm getting asked to speak more on it. Um, mm. Jim Carr is, you know, going around to the different conferences speaking on it. There's uh, Kara Regan, Manny Rodriguez, who are all speaking on this. Um, and also, you know, Dr. Daniel Moran, he's been speaking on this for some years. Leadership development and connecting acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm. Um, I've been following him for years. Um, RB Daniels, the OBM sector has um, these resources. And so I think the other thing is that we have to be intentional at mm. developing. We are very intentional uh, learning about the science and the interventions and the strategies, but we're not as intentional in learning about how do we properly develop and manage people. How do we use our own science on ourselves as clinicians and as leaders, right? Mm. Which is why they're adding that OBM sector to the university program. That's mm. to be 315 hours of OBM and in that OBM is leadership development. Mm. Knowing the difference of supervisory skills and leadership skills. Yes. Those are totally different things, right? There's difference between a supervisor, a mentor, sponsorship, and a leader. Mm. Uh, and you have to be intentional. Somebody um, at my uh, leadership development and conflict resolution presentation that I did at APBA, there was a girl, she wore glasses, blonde hair, had on a white t-shirt. I can't remember her name, mm. um, but I will remember her saying this probably for the rest of my career. So mm. that you shout out to you and I mm. message me <laughs> if you hear this but she said we have to be intentional at developing our leadership skills and right now we're not being intentional mm. we're not constantly seeing leadership development skills workshops at our conferences we're not seeing you know it's hard to get supervision mm. at conferences because we're all about maybe the ethics and maybe you know um the and yes the science and the application mm. but with the growth of our field we gotta sh- we gotta be able to do both and we gotta shift mm-hmm. uh, and seeing more and more clinicians focusing on the development of, of skills as a leader um and an innovator and a thought thought person um is important mm. And so, for sure it is, but how, how is it sort of different? How is leadership development going to be different for these for these young Black clinicians versus others? Mm-hmm. You know, for leadership development, 
and what and how you need to work on it is different per you know demographic right yeah. so yeah. um kind of going back to that cross-cultural research article that we were talking about earlier they looked at the body language they looked at the tone right there's mm. some different emotional regulation skills that black women working in majority white areas of rural areas need than black women working in the middle of chicago with mm. that right because you're going to be facing two different types of people yeah. <laughs> and your conflict resolution skills and your communication skills are two, uh, two totally different ends of the spectrum there mm-hmm. because of the environmental variables so if we think about what environmental variables are at play per culture, right, and then what leadership development skills need to look like there, right? Mm. As a Black individual, I want to live a soft life. I, <laughs> I want to, you know, come in and have a supportive team, but I know we're not always going to get that. So mm-hmm. part of my leadership skills is how do I motivate other people to provide support to Black women? Mm. Right. And black men. Right. BNBA, Jerron Trotman, um, black men in behavior analysis, what they need, even the intersectionality of a black man working in a, a majority white woman field mm-hmm. is totally different. Right. They're scared to even give a woman a compliment. I think all men right now are all scared to give a woman a compliment, but especially a black man who have been historically been told you did something to me that is untrue. Mm. And that happens. Yes. What I teach though, that population is going to be totally different than what I'm going to say as a black woman or an indigenous woman. Right. Mm. Um, and so it, it absolutely has to look different, but it depends on your environmental variables. What are at play here? And what does that look like? One of the, the other things that us as, as Black leaders, um, we also have to work on showing up authentically ourselves and being confident to do that and to not code switch, even when the environment does not call for mm. me to do that, right? Um, or creating the environment to not call for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do it every day. And it's something that has to be at the forefront of my mind to not do. So um, you, you code switch every day or you try not to or both? Oh, I code switch every day, but mm. I try not to mm. at the same time. But mm. after 30 years or 28 years of being conditioned to do that and being reinforced when I have done that. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. The I, and I, I know a little bit about code switching and, and I get why, you know, black people do it. Um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of it is sort of survival instincts and, and those sorts of things. Is, is there anything, you know, like, I don't even, I don't know if someone's code switching. Right. You right? Like, I don't know right now if you are or you aren't. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably because most of folks like me, our exposure to black people has been when they've been code switching, you know, I, you know, in part. And so we just sort of assume that's, you know, and then and when or and when they haven't, you know, and, and, and again, you know, for folks like myself who were, you know, before kind of really doing the, this podcast, I wasn't exposed to black people at all. Um, you know, my only exposure to black people would be on like, you know, daytime 
daytime TV, you know, Jerry Springer yeah. or whatever, you know, uh, uh, you know, I know, again, not, not, I, I get it, not the greatest source of information. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of, you know, seeing, you know, folks that I think folks on those shows probably aren't code switching much, um, uh, you know, white or black. I mean, there, there's some, there's some, you know, there's some authentic selves that appear on some of that stuff. Right, 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 right. Um, 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 are there things, you know, that we can do as sort of, you know, allies or white folks or whatever you want to call us, um, um, you know, to, to help you not do that, to help you feel safer, you know, in that way. And that, I, don't, I don't know if that's the right question because I'm not looking for, you know, I, 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 something I've been learning in sort of my kind of journey of, you know, understanding other cultures is, you know, it's, it's not the other culture's job to, you know, tell me how to, you know, be a good person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, you know, right. how can I be, how can I not be a racist, you know, no, right. that, that, you know, we'll start by not being a racist, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it, you know, yeah, I, I'm not looking for sort of that, but I guess what I'm looking for are, are there things that, you know, you'd like to see, I guess, in the systems, it, are there changes in the systems that you, that, 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 that sort of, you know, we can help work towards that would, you know, help you help black folks be their authentic selves in in in, right. in sort of those in sort of those contexts and situations. Yeah. yeah. Well, number one, you know, I think the continual commitment and committed action, right? We talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. The continued day-to-day committed action of being committed to anti-racism. Mm, yeah. Right. It's one thing to be like to recognize that there's an issue, right? But yeah. it's another thing to like be committed to being an anti-racist mm-hmm. and to to unlearn your things. Like as yeah. you said, like it, up until this podcast, you know, you had not interacted with a lot of black individuals, and you've interacted mm-hmm. with qu- quite a few. You know, mm-hmm. I think majority of the your guests now mm-hmm. <laughs> identify if not black clinicians, mm. right? And so you probably hear, you see a pattern, right? If you're actually doing, you know, being the behavior analyst, mm-hmm. right? you see a pattern in some of the themes and the things that we're yep. saying, language that we're saying, because it's, we all have a, we might not all have the same experience, but a mm-hmm. very similar experience, right? Yeah. So I think the committed action and being an anti-racist and always committing to evolving Right. And then yeah. let that be known, right? There's gonna be certain things that you absolutely cannot do because again, it's 30 years, it's a hundred years, it's two hundred years of shit yeah. <laughs> and guck, right? Yeah. And we're slowly trying to climb ourselves out of that while we're yeah. also slowly being pushed back yeah. to do that, right? Um, and so I think that's the best the best thing to do yeah. is be committed to being an anti-racist. Yeah. Right. It's one thing to say, like, I'm not, I, I recognize microaggressions. I recognize this. Yes. But it's a totally different thing. And I know the, the people of other cultures that I feel most comfortable around are committed to being an anti-racist. Right. Yeah. And that's when I can show up 
more of myself without fear of like judgment or backlash or anything like that. But then from a system standpoint, you know, passing legislation like the Crown Act, right? Like not, you know, knowing the history between the verbal behavior of lots versus dreads, right? And what that really looked like, knowing the history of like, like, there's this huge movement of like what's appropriate dress at work in the office Mm -hmm. and what's considered professional Yes, arguments about what women are allowed to wear on legislation floors Mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's like, I got to have on a blazer, but it's like, you know, so from a system standpoint, let's really look at, you know, um, there's a story of a previous company I used to work for, a white woman walks in, smells like weed, and it says, oh, my boyfriend has a medical card. That's why, like, my clothes will smell like that. Mm. A, a Black woman comes in, smells like weed. She's fired right on the spot mm. without any explanation, just for the odor. We have to be committed to anti-racism. And until mm-hmm. we are are doing that in the workplace, yes, everyone, whether you're Black, Indigenous, Indian, you know, Asian, you know, Pacific Islander, whatever. Until the majority is committed to anti-racism, we're going to get. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And that was sort of. An early lesson, I think anti-racism as a word is something that's been around for a while, but is new to a lot of people in the last couple of years. Um, I, uh, a couple of my early sort of pivotal moments in my, in my, in my sort of anti-racism journey. One was Dr. Nasia, um, and the workshops that she put on with Scott Herbst right after, mm-hmm. like, like a week after the George Floyd murder or something like that. She did yeah. like a, a month long series of workshops and I went to all of them. They were free and and uh and she got people talking and uh you know and feeling super uncomfortable and gosh you know discomfort was all i was feeling in june of 2020 um lots of twisting and turning was great though and it was powerful and uh you know i had her on the podcast recently and i i thanked her for for that for for starting me on the road the other thing was was and I'm not a reader. I got a bookshelf here, but I haven't opened half of these books. Um, you you know, look, they look good at Michelle. Yeah, they do look good. I've opened like certain pages, but that's about it, you know. And yeah. um, and uh, and generally, I've not been a nonfiction reader ever. Um, but I so I don't know what possessed me beyond you know I think the motivation uh, to 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 take out. Uh, an Ibram Kendi book from the library called Stamp from the Beginning, which is, it's thick, you know, it's like five, 600 pages, but it, it's the literal, you know, history of racism in the world in a lot of ways. Like it goes back, I feel like it goes back to like the 14 or 1500s, um, and tells you the whole story and he's a historian so that's that's sort of you know he's writing from that perspective lots of dates and you know i, I hated dates in history class and in, 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 in you know public school but you know he goes through them all and uh and you know 
I used to think I had no idea about racism because I didn't know about sort of, you know, civil rights or whatever. Um, but open that book up and I, I really didn't know anything about racism and kind of how it forms and how it built over and what true intergenerational genetic, you know, mm -hmm. trauma looks like, like that book, that's a hard read that book, not, not just in terms of sort of the information you're going to learn, but just in, in terms of how thick it is and, and how much stuff there is. But, you know, what I really learned from that, not only the whole history and, and it just, just, you know, and, 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 you know, I learned about kind of black excellence and about what, you know, that it's not just, you know, that black people weren't born into slavery, you know, there, there was, there's a whole, there's the eon, whole there, of there's like eons of history, um, which, yeah. which I'm starting to get connecting to with the indigenous communities. We've learned a lot about, about that, you know, particularly up here in yeah. kind of my neck of the woods, but you know, Black history is equally, if not more, um, you know, amazing um, um, uh, historically, and then and and how we just sort of shredded that to bits with bizarre theories like the climate theory, you know, of of uh, you know, and, and others which folks can kind of look up. But you know, um, but what I learned about was sort of you know that there's no such thing as being as as saying you can't even say i'm not a racist and there's no such thing as not being racist um uh, you're either you're you're either a racist or you're an anti-racist there's no such there's no sort of there's no, middle ground. <laughs> there's no sort of uh, you know nether world in between you you, you know right. unless you're unless you're just frozen in time not breathing and if you're in, i guess if you're in you know space age cryogenic suspended animation okay at that moment, you are not a racist, sure. Um, but as, soon, <laughs> as soon as you start breathing and talking, you're one of the two. Um, and uh, and and that was that was a real a fundamental shift for me, you know. Um, and you know, and I couldn't immediately go on to the well. I'm an anti-racist, then you know, because I wasn't. You know, I said, and that's, yeah, yeah. So. I'm a racist. That's what it was. And, and I had to say that over and over again, really loud. Um, and not feel like I had to sort of end my life because I said that, you know. Um, uh, and I still am, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, but I think I'm both now. Um, and uh, I don't know what the point of that was, but I think it was just sort of just sort of trying to understand that, uh, you know, the committed yeah. action. Yeah, yeah. You, you either yeah. Got, you, you got to do you're always doing something. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not doing something to actively, you know, work against the systems, um, then you're automatically working with the systems. You're right. automatically making things worse by not doing anything. And that was that 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 was a fundamental shift in my thinking. And I think that's something that, you know, any person out there that, you know, you know, maybe identifies as being from, the uh, you know, a privileged majority background. A non-oppressed background that's what you gotta that's that's the that's the switch you gotta put on you, you gotta flip are you a bcba supervisor looking to streamline your practice or maybe you're working towards your bcba and need to find the right supervisor Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee for supervisors they offer easy meeting documentation 
competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search Whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is growing. Right. And it's difficult. Yeah. Even within ourselves, right? Like, you know, nobody says that people of color don't have their own racism to work through, don't yeah. have their own prejudice to work through, right? Yeah. We, you know, the black community, um, we have a lot of things to work on with other marginalized communities yeah. that we uphold, right? Like, no one likes to talk about um, the very anti LGBTQIA plus our our generations of our community have been mm-hmm. right and how our current um black trans black um lgbtq plus community feel from our elders mm-hmm. and from our parents from our mm-hmm. grandparents right mm-hmm. from our own people and how we understand um black sexuality mm-hmm. and you know we i know a lot is focused on white individuals with every other race, right? Sure. I'm not saying that that doesn't need to be top priority because it does, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Right. Um, However, I am, I am understanding that there is some intersectionality within that. Mm -hmm. We have our own things that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. Right. So at BABA, one of the things that we are really committed to with our conference is utilizing the financial um, aspects of the conference to as a form of activism mm. and as a form of advocacy. And so we are really committed to using like the, the everyone loves our swag bags. They always talk about our swag bags. Mm. Right? And our swag bags are, are pretty darn nice. Okay. Um, absolutely. You definitely not going to see your average, like your pen and your notebook and like, here's a sticker. Right? Mm. <laughs> um, but in our swag bags, we specifically use that to, you know, um, partner with Black-owned businesses, right? But mm. what about the intersectionality within that? We specifically have chosen to do neurodivergent Black-owned businesses or Black-owned mm. businesses that are um, identifying the LGBTQ plus IA yeah. and using that as a form of act- activism. And I talked about it at my, I had a conference logistics panel at APBA um, with a research team um, mm. that I'm a part of. And we, and we talked about how organizations and people can just like shift where their dollars are going and as a form of, I am committed to action to being an anti-racist in this manner, right? Mm-hmm. Those organizations get thousands and thousands of dollars. I know because we put on a conference. So I know mm-hmm. the money. And I know when you're charging, I saw a conference charging $850 for registration. Yes. What? <laughs> <laughs> but you're getting that money. How are you using some of those funds as, yes. as um, committed initiatives to better diversity and better inclusion? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, that's 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 really good. Maybe maybe we can finish off by talking a bit more about Baba for folks because um, I don't know if everybody knows what Baba is. Um, um, 
in fact, I had a conversation the other day with someone that I thought would know what it is, and then they didn't yeah. know about they didn't know what Bob meant, and they were a black behavior analyst. Yeah, um, and, there are a ton of black behavior analysts who do not know we exist. Yeah, um, and we are, you know, one of our um, recruitment efforts that we're doing is we're actually going to speak with the ABA agencies because we realize our people are not at the conferences. Our people are not, you know, yes. going to the professional development arenas because those arenas have historically not been for us. And there's some inclusion issues. Mm -hmm. Right. But we know that we have a, you know, we make up 13 percent of behavior technicians. Right. So we are going to the ABA agencies to speak in front of their staff to let the staff know we exist. Right. Mm. Um, and that's where we're really focusing our recruitment efforts. So I know traditionally, you know, people are like, oh, Baba doesn't have a vendor table at this conference, that conference, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, we know, but our people are not going to the conferences. We want to go where our people are going. Yes. And that's their technicians right now. They're in community colleges right now, you know, um, but we want more and more, you know, for the behavior analysts who don't know about us to learn about us and yeah. we are you know trying to to reach them so uh, thank you for you know having the, you know have you heard of baba you know just making sure they're a great community mm -hmm. um, because yeah uh, we have a lot of black connections who still do not know about baba yeah so i i like to just know a little bit more about it like so when was it founded were you involved in the founding or no, so um, I was not. So Baba was founded. It started off as a Facebook page. Mm. And Kat Jackson, who is a BCBA now in Alabama. Mm. Um, yeah, in Alabama. I think she's still there. Mm. Um, started this Facebook page. Okay. She started it back in like, I think like 2017, 2018, yep. something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's how I found it, right? It was a Facebook page and right. I was just Googling like where people at. <laughs> um, and she just started it because she was experiencing a lot of racism and wanted to know, you mm. know, is there an organization or is there a space, a safe space for us in this in this industry? Yeah. And so um Kat Jackson started it and Baba actually had a president and a vice president before myself and Tiana. And mm. not many people know that. Mm. Uh, so I would like to shout out uh, Davina and Dee Hazard. Um, they were the founding president and vice president. And Kat mm. Jackson was the founder of BABA. Okay. And then when um, we got incorporated and things like that, um, Davina and Dee uh, kind of stepped away. And then I was voluntold <laughs> that I needed to be the president of BABA and mm. Tiana was the vice president of Baba. And so from there, um, with Tiana and my uh, leadership, Baba has developed into what you see today. Mm. So um, we do a, we do a little bit of everything. Um, and we are very proud of what we have accomplished so far. We um, want to focus on being a legacy organization and a legacy business and not just kind of popping up and then fizzling off and things like that. Mm. So we function um, with a very business, business mindset. And the new president and new vice president is uh, Tia Glover is the president. And then Dr. Danielle Beal is mm. the current vice president of of baba so um yeah i think 
I think we, our main mission is we want to uplift, educate, and empower the Black community and anybody who stands behind the Black community. Mm. And I think we do a really, really good job at that um, without, while continuing to center the Black clinician, the Black technician, mm-hmm. the Black family. Mm. Um, and everything we do is definitely for us, by us. Um, and we we make that known. And I think that is different than what, the typical professional development arena is mm. used. And so um, mm. we have some organizations that we ruffle some feathers. We have some people that are jealous, envious, and we were talking about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we are here to up, uplift the Black community. And so um, if you're on that train, come join us. And if not, there are other organizations. Yeah, yeah. And so when was the, that's awesome. When, when was the, the first conference? Yeah, so the first conference was virtual in um, June 2021. Mm. Yes, June 2021, we had a virtual conference because it was COVID. Mm -hmm. We had planned on having an in-person conference, but, you know, COVID. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So we had a virtual conference. We had uh, Dr. Antonio Harrison, Dr. Nasia Suincion Uluzi, and Denisha Jingles were our keynote speakers Mm. that year. Um, and we had over 70, uh, 70 speakers. We had over 600 attendees. Um, we were, and through virtual computer, you felt the community. You did. Wow. Um, and that's, I, I think that was the pillar that changed the name of the game for conferences in, in behavior analysis and mm-hmm. also was a pillar moment of changing what people expect from professional development organizations. So last year within was the first live one. Yep. And, yeah. you know, I wasn't there, but, you know, and I wasn't at the virtual one either, but like I, I wanted to be there last year because <laughs> it, it's... I've never heard so much buzz about a conference in my entire life. Like, and, you know, and, and, you know, the the flagship conference for us is ABAI and it's, that's a giant thing. I've been, I've been to a couple of those and, um, and they are, they're massive and they're, and they're, and, but they were different. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I know ABI is not really, you know, is, is, is is hopefully doing some learning right now um because because you know i think i think being sort of the you know i'm not i'm not looking to slam them but sort of being sort of the you know the, the main conference in our field for a long long time um um yeah baba's baba you know and, and i think weba as well in some ways you know and i think now apba you know with 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 sort of tyra at the helm um are starting to show the field that there's not just one way to do a conference um there's not just one way to sort of you know get folks together and there's a way to actually get folks together like i feel like abai doesn't get folks together um in, unless you've been in the field for a long long time it, it it gets a lot of folks exposed to things but um it just it just i mean i i didn't love my experiences at those conferences i liked being there to learn and i was really you know, 
energized by some some of the particular topics and whatnot but um but you know it just sounds like baba is 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 a whole other a whole other game when it comes to conferences and i think you've really sort of started to you know up the standard is the right word but sort of change it um in in such a good way yeah you know um I have a, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but ultimately I'm glad that the community is seeing what Baba is doing with everything that we do, even, mm. you know, outside of the conferences and it's changing because they see and they hear and they know how successful we have been, but we are just doing what has not been done for us, you know, um, Prior to BABA, there were no conferences that offered scholarships mm. to attend, right? You either had the money or you didn't, and it was not their concern if you didn't have it. BABA came out on a virtual conference and said, here's some scholarships, here's some money. We spent $23,000 in our first in-person conference getting people there because we know that people of color have a financial difference to attend. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, and just people in general. Right. Whether that was offered to whether if you were an ally and advocate member or a, a, a professional member, early career member. Right. And so with our scholarships, the feel, you know, I was having a conversation with a very well-known clinician in our field. And they said, you know, I can't wait to be to go to Baba when I'm invited. Mm. And I said, oh, that's funny because you you'll never be invited to Baba <laughs> yeah. because we only invite Black clinicians, well, right? As yeah. Everyone else that you see presenting at Baba that is not Black has submitted a call for papers. Yeah. They had named this clinician. They said, oh, they told me, you know, oh, you do invite white clinicians because so-and-so presented there. And I said, mm-hmm. So-and-so humbled themselves and submitted a call for papers. Let me tell yep. you, right? Um, and so I think we're also showing the field that guess what? Black people can be centered and you don't have to be centered in professional development spaces. And you gotta be okay with that if mm-hmm. you want to, right? Mm-hmm. If you do not come to Baba, if you are not comfortable not being centered, (laughs) because you're not going to be the majority. This is a majority Black attended conference. We center Black research, Black clinicians, Black families. We're also sprinkling in support for other people. Mm. Um, You know, we have our Baba besties and things like that. And so I think as a whole, you know, you're right, you haven't seen not as nearly as much buzz about a conference as you do Baba, mm-hmm. as you do about the organization in itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and we only invite like a good three speakers and everyone else you see just wants to speak to our community, wants to be on our platform because yeah. we also keep people damn good. <laughs> you know, um, our customer service and our, our community efforts are great, but um, we, we do other things other than the conference as well, right? Like we have weekly study sessions for students Mm. put on by black teachers, Mm. right? We have mentorship provided to our clinicians put on by black clinicians. 
interests, right? We had the special interest group, Black Men in the ABA, put on by Jerron Chapman and Dr. Bruce Tenor. Um, you know, we have cohort training for business development. And we part. The third secret word is leader. With other organizations um, for different trainings, right? And so we we do so much on top of tuition-based scholarships and mm. things. So, like I said, we're just doing what has not been done for us. Mm-hmm. And there's something else too that that I think, you know, folks uh, I think are are picking up on it, and and a reason for the buzz is is the topics and speakers themselves are. Are so different from what we're we're used to hearing and listen listening to forever and ever and ever and reading and so on and so forth. I've, I've said this before. I, I don't just have black guests on the podcast because they're black, mm-hmm. you know, because um, there's lots of black professionals out there that I don't have on the podcast. Uh, right. But um, mm-hmm. um, uh, I may get to you, um, and hopefully I do. But. One thing that, that that I've noticed that has been really, you know, mind altering, and again, and I hadn't noticed before, because I was being racist, um, was mm-hmm. that because I didn't expect it, I guess, or, or didn't even look for it, I guess, is including yourself, every black individual that I've had on the podcast and talked to has blown my mind uh, with uh, their perspective, their knowledge, their ideas, you know, you know, when, when you grow up in kind of a, a white centered environment, you're only open to sort of white centered sort of thoughts and you're, and there is that sort of, you know, we're at the top of the food chain, you know, kind of, kind of mentality that, you know, that, learning from sort of, you know, the best, the most humble or whatever profession, white professional, you know, is the best you're going to get, you know, and it's going to be the highlight perspective in your life. And that's, that, that's, that's what you need to kind of empower you to move forward is, is that white voice. To suddenly now hear all of these black voices that have just a whole other you talk about resilience, the resilience alone, you know, have this whole other sort of just mindset and, and perspective and, 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 and presentation and, 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 and knowledge and, and authenticity and all this stuff that you don't see. I don't, I never saw in, 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 you know, in the white professionals that I was exposed to. Um, and just, just there's just a whole other side. It's a worldview. And if you, I've heard that phrase a few times. And I've used it. It's this worldview that that you just can't, you know, quantify until you start having these interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's similar with the indigenous worldviews. Those have also equally blown my mind. I've had some really interesting conversations with indigenous folks. Um, uh, you know, and some indigenous behavior analysts, which I think that number is probably even lower um, in, in terms of the percentage, because I think I know, I know like three or four now in Canada. Um, and, uh, and but the perspectives are just like, like, I, I like a, a part of me, you know, doesn't want to hear, you know, 
doesn't have time to hear any more white speakers uh, because I feel like I've heard all that already and I've had all that. There's a few folks out there that are that you know still have some 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 interesting new stuff to say or are talking about topics that I've you know never heard about. But you know they're few and far between compared to the 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 the, the conversation I've been having with with you know people of color and it's just. Mm-hmm. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, two different playing fields. Yeah, but, and I think that again, because of the oppression, because of our experience, we have to be ten times better to be taken seriously. Mm. You have to see, even all the people that you're talking to, mm-hmm. right? All the black clinicians, all the BIPOC clinicians that mm. you're speaking to. A good chunk of them have never been invited keynote speakers. Right. Right. A good chunk of them have never been invited to speak at a, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe your podcast was the first time, you know, mm. um, to just put their information out there. Because, right. you know, we're so used to just going in our network and in our bubble and yeah. the people at play. Also, don't interact with any BIPOC individuals to even mm. know what they're doing. To know that it's actually ten times better than the mediocrity that we've been we've been yes. getting, right? And I'm not saying that you know I want to make it very clear, and anybody who knows me um, knows this. It's not that white clinicians, the majority of the clinicians, are also not doing innovative things. What I know is if you are actually doing the research on innovation, you're going to see more BIPOC people doing more more innovative things yeah. than the majority of the clinicians. There's a conference organization that I, I can't wait to possibly get an email across my, my email inviting me to speak there. But they had asked Baba to help promote their conference, right, mm. to um, send out some marketing advertisements. We have a lot of organizations who want us to market, want to market to our community, mm. but don't want to be committed to our community, right? Mm. That's a whole other mm-hmm. podcast conversation. Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we went back and said, you have no people of color on your lineup. Um, you want the Black organization to help promote this because people recognize the. Um, the impact that Baba has, yep. and I'm very, very proud of that. Um, and you, it's a certain validation that people get when they see, oh, Baba's supporting them, oh, Baba is reposting that, right? Mm. Um, mm. And I understand that, and we 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 understand that. Um, but when asked your speaker selection process, because there's not a single person of color nor a black person on there, the president of the organization said. Or are they ch- trying to make us change our speaker selection process? The person said, no, they're just asking what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. We're, we're, I'm not saying change anything. I'm just saying, how did you not <laughs> you, you how did this come up? Yeah. And they said, um, well, let them know we choose the best speakers. That's mm-hmm. our process. Okay. We will not be promoting yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you need to do your own your own work over there, right? Um, and now, you know, they're in, you know, my text messages, can you help us? I thought you choose the best, you choose the best mm-hmm, speakers. Mm-hmm. So I think that, again, um, if these conferences were doing the research, you would see more people of color speaking. Totally you would. 
it's hand hand down, hand down. And we don't have a short, shortage of that at Baba. Like I have a I have a database of 50 speakers for the next 10 years. And I'm like, yep, mm-hmm. this is it. Um, of all black clinicians, right? Um, and there just has to be a better process. There was an article that came out in November of November of last year, November 2022, um, and it looked at the top 20 speakers at conferences across um, 2010 to 2015, hmm. and 19 of them were white, one was Asian American, hmm. and Pat Fryman had put on 18 presentations, of which 12 of them were keynote speakers hmm. at state associations or ABAI. And so Pat Ryman, great man, not yes. not does a lot of stuff, great yep. speaker, right? But he had been recycled 12 times for keynotes, and not a single black clinician was on that list, not a single Latinx clinician was on that list, not a single indigenous clinician was on that list. But yeah, everybody coming on your show, I've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, you know. Nasia was doing doing presentations out of her house for years. Mm-hmm. So Baba invited her. Now you see her everywhere, right? Because Baba gave her a platform. Yep. But not that these other associations and conferences had the same the same means of YouTube. YouTube. That's how I found Asia. She has yep. a YouTube channel. That's how I found her. And I was like, we've got to have her. We're not doing anything that other people are not capable of, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have to do a better job at diversifying our speakers, at diversifying yeah. the experience, because it's not just the speakers that get the people to this conference. It's the feel. It's the feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, way to go, Baba. <laughs> yeah, way to go, Baba. <clears throat> Um, you know, we're made up of an uh, e-board of like 15 now. Um, like I said, Tia and Danielle are doing an amazing job at, um, you know, continuing to push mm. the mission, continuing to meet our community. And um, our advisory board, we have an advisory board of 15 people who also help guide our organization. And um, without them, we wouldn't be able to do all the things. So how how big is Baba these days? How many members do you have? And yeah, so the other day I checked, we have three hundred and seventy-one members, um, comprised of uh, we have like five different membership tiers. Yeah. So three seventy-one currently. And, and how many of those are black members? You know, I don't know that number. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that number. I would yeah. I would probably want to say like eighty percent of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We do have a large ally and advocate membership. Right. So um, for those who don't know, you you do not have to be black to join the organization. Yep. You can. I'm a member. Yep. As an ally and advocate, yeah, yep. I think like forty bucks or something like yep. that. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Um, you get benefits as well, but um, yeah, we accept any and everyone in into our organization, and as long as you know you're you're committed to being an anti-racist soldier. You know, interacting with our community or just even willing to just learn, we we welcome you 100%. 100%. The, the, the free monthly CEU for members that you folks do is is worth it alone for the membership. Yes. So <laughs> if you want an ally membership, I mean, they're yes. great speakers every month. And uh, 
and a, and a free CEU and uh, free CEU. And, Sometimes uh, a couple, you couple, know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What we got going on? Have you? I mean, you know, it's early days still. I think for Baba in, in a lot of obviously, but I mean, it's five years, sort of whatever. Um, are you sort of with the with the onset of this whole change in the BACB and whatnot around the certifying folks around the world? Um, have you looked at sort of reaching out and, and inviting, you know, and, and trying to get sort of international members and whatnot? I mean, obviously you've got, uh, your base is going to be the U.S. I mean, like you said, you only have 300 and whatever members in and and right. just growing in the U.S. alone with the number of most of the black professionals are probably in the U.S. I mean, that, that that's certainly the place to focus. But um, just wondering, mostly because of when I uh, did the that promotion in February, um for black history month i got a, a a lot of my the free ce requests came out of africa mm-hmm. and there were a lot of african and aba professionals that were you know sort of keen to get more of this information and looking to sort of you know and, and looking for support and you know i mean uh, i'm interviewing next week uh you know like some behavior analysts from ghana and nigeria and uh, just sort of hear the, the stories they have of because of, they're they're like literally you know some of them are the first BCBAs in their country, no, you know you. you know count on one hand how many professionals are all together they're they're starting these fields in their nations, and um, and uh, you know and 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 a few of them you know uh, the only way they get any kind of training or certification is through um, you know American universities often right. online. Uh, there's some problems around sort of um, an RBT training um, yeah. in that basically they're they're overtraining. There, there's all these cheap, crazy RBT courses in America that are offered to people overseas. And mm-hmm. so all these folks are getting certified as RBTs in countries that have no BCBAs, no, no behavior analysts to supervise them, which is creating, you know, other problems. Um, yeah. And so I'm just kind of wondering about sort of supports that could be available for those folks in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we do actually work with the international community. We work mm. with um, Autism Compassions Africa, ACA. Mm. Um, they have companies in both Ghana, Nigeria, um, and I believe possibly opening up one in South Africa. But yeah, those are, is- those are the, actually the folks I'm interviewing are from. Oh, are from, okay. From, Joy. From, are you interviewing Joy? I'm interviewing Joy and uh, Josephine. Josephine. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I've been working with them um, for some years. Oh, wow. Um, so they are, they are great. Baba um, has supported them. Um, Study Notes ABA has supported them. Mm. So we do, um, we're, oh. We've been trying for years to get them over here for the conference mm, as well, yeah. but uh, visas, visa red tape, and yes. it's is a huge. It's been our issue for the last three years. Mm-hmm. Trying to get them over here, so um, we do do a lot for them. Actually, yeah. so we offer memberships for free. Um, we had international student memberships, but what people, some people don't realize, is PayPal actually doesn't allow for payments to come out of um, certain countries mm. those certain countries include ghana and nigeria wow so the system the membership payment system we were using previously with paypal 
did not allow for them to purchase membership because they lived in this identified country. Mm. So you want to talk again, systemic, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. How it can seep into nonprofits yep. and, you know, the international community. So we've had to figure out, so we ended up having to take our international student membership away because we were using PayPal, switch over to a whole new system, a whole new website as mm. uh, People can see we have a new updated membership portal type website Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and moving away from PayPal. Mm -hmm. But all of that takes time, right? So in the meantime, (laughs) they still have access to our study groups. You know, we find we found alternative ways to get them their student membership. Awesome. Um, But even outside of Africa, you know, um, we had a Kansha who we've been able to support out of India and Australia. Um, Georgiana Koyoma was the keynote speaker out of the UK. Um, We have a couple Canadian members um, over over there near you. Mm. Um, But we absolutely recognize particularly that we have to not um, exclude our international community, mm-hmm. to Baba, particularly our African-based countries, right? Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. Ghana, Syria, you know, Morocco, the UAE has a, a lot of black clinicians um, yeah. there as well. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out ways, again, we offer a lot of free stuff mm. uh, and to our members, including our international community because mm. of the financial difference. And I don't think as uh, clinicians in the States, we don't think about the financial difference, yeah. right? For every dollar, they make like five cents. Yeah. Right? So when we're talking about the cost of our conference, the cost of membership, the cost of trainings, the time of day that we have trainings, right? So mm-hmm. our yeah. entire Black History Month fundraiser were to support the Commit and Act um, organization in Sierra Leone. Right. We did a fundraising CEUs where we had Brianna Kelly, Malika Pritchett, and Denisha Jingles um, speaking on, you know, areas of behavior analysis associated with that organization. Mm. But we also had to think about the day that we have those and the mm-hmm. time that we have mm-hmm. In the crack of midnight, 1, 2 a.m. for them, for organization that we're trying to support. So um, we want to be able to support more. We want to figure out a way to get past this visa red tape. So if there's a lawyer, immigration lawyer out there listening, please email me because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. work this out. But um, Joy and Josephine are, are great women. Um, they're doing a lot. Whitney Hamill, who um, yeah. is supporting them over there, is amazing and really um does a really good job of not censoring herself and centering mm-hmm. um, the people from there and how does behavior analysis need to look for them. Um, they also presented at our, at our conference, our virtual conference. Oh, wow. Awesome. As well, so. well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah. You know, I haven't, I haven't asked anyone about that yet, but I'm curious sort of yeah. what, what, uh, what resources are available to folks. So that's awesome that you're, you're doing yeah, that. Study Notes ABA has, has also done an amazing job. Um, shout out to Casey and Leah and Jordan mm. on just study materials as well. Mm. You know, the cost of those study materials. So Study Notes ABA has, has really assisted us in how do we get them certified or get the materials, you know, connected with the IBAO and Quaba and things awesome. like that. Awesome. Cool. Wow. 
Lots a lot of cool going on behind the scenes. Lots <laughs> of cool stuff going on, Adrian. Right on. Well, um, maybe just kind of, we can just finish off by talking about uh, this year's conference. So, so because uh, I, I and which will force me to get this episode out before that happens. Um, <laughs> so, what uh, anything cool, different happening this year? Yeah, yeah. So we're um, going to be back in Detroit this year. It's going to be yeah. our last year in Detroit. Yeah. Um, we wanted to stay stable with the location as, you know, we were starting, which is mm-hmm. the best decision we could have made. Um, we have Dr. Jamila Watson Thompson um, mm. out of the University of Kentucky. Kansas, I think. Kansas, Kansas, yeah. Kansas. I'm sorry. Um, she is going to be one of our keynote speakers. She's going to be discussing uh, community collective activism and behavior analysis and what does that look like. Oh, yeah. um, she's Dr. amazing. Yes, she is. She is. She's great. Um, Dr. Jamalin Kosi, who great. is going to be our other keynote speaker, and he is the co-founder of the IBAO, yes. um, which is the International uh, Behavior Analyst Certification Accreditation yeah. um, Organization. Um, so he's going to be discussing severe problem behavior and how to treat that in the school system. Nice. And then we have Anika Costa who is out of Florida, mm. who works um, with Brett Devoney Associates and does a lot with uh, Dr. Polly Giovanni, Giovanni right. um, out of Florida. And she's going to be discussing collaboration of behavior analysts and school teams. Awesome. And so um, we have a ton of presentations this year. Mm. We have a lot on OBM, a mm. lot on school-based behavior, um, but a lot more clinical application as well mm. and i think that's really nice to see from black clinicians because i think a lot of times we get stuck or put in a box of discussing dei and not discussing yes efforts, right yeah. um so i think it's amazing that we're going to be able to shine a light on the clinical work mm-hmm. that um, black clinicians are doing and we have michael reynolds out of california discussing parent training mm. you have dr Nicole collins discussing toileting mm. um, you know, we have so many, so many different, different things. And I'm just really, Kiera uh, and Jessica out of Michigan Western University talking about precision teaching, right, um, and fluency. And so we, we're going to have a lot of examples of, of different things, but we're going to have some fun too, right? So um, we have our events and if Black people are not going to do anything, we're going to party at the <laughs> same time. So we have our networking event this year where we mm. rented out a floor on um, the Princess Boat, which is a mm. boat in Detroit. And so we're going to be able to have a, a four-hour boat ride with food and all the things. And wow. Fun. And at the same time, as our networking event is also going to be a Motown um, event happening on the floor below us. And so guests wow. will be able to go down um, to the Motown event as well. Awesome. Motown people can't come up to us, but we can go down. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Because the Motown Museum was actually being renovated last year. So no one was able to go. And so this Mm. year um, we thought that was really nice. Um, And then, of of course, we have our C. Richard Spates uh, Awards reception. Mm. And if anybody knows anything about Dr. Richard Spates, he um, used to work at Western. He would be a great interviewee for you. Mm. Mm. Um, because he was one of the very first black behaviorists 
in our field. Mm. Um, he helped start up ABAI, worked with all those people, wow. um, and was shunned out of research, was shunned out of our industry um, until again, Bob. Um, mm. he, Dr. Linda LeBlanc introduced us to him, and um, he is a legend. legend. Mm. So cool. Research him, but we have our awards reception gala that gets real formal, real fancy. Um, but we give away our research, our Dr. Temple Lovelace Research Award and mm -hmm. our uh, Dr. Samuel M. Turner Innovation Award to just highlight the efforts of uh, Black clinicians in this field that are not getting highlighted by other organizations. Yeah. So again, for us, by us, to us, you know, it's definitely the theme there. That's awesome. Right on. Cool. Well, I hope I can get there. Um, yeah. Make it happen. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Adrian. Really yes, cool. Thank you for having me. Thank Absolutely. You so much. Yeah. Right on. We'll see you again.